Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Debbie Weiss, to our show today. Debbie, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Matt. Good, 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 good. Why do you say that? What is good for you today? What does that mean for you in your place you're in in your life right now? Well, after my loss, and that's what I'm probably going to be talking about, I'm very happy that I'm in a new home that I've lived in for a couple years and that I have a second love in my life and um, that it's just a gorgeous sunny day here in Venetia, California. I just love living here. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you for bringing out the smile and sharing that. And on the heels of that, take us to the challenges and love to dive into what was something earlier in your life that was incredibly challenging for you, Debbie? Well, I probably had, by most people's standards, two big challenges in my life. The first was in 1973 when I lost my mom. I was 10 years old and she got a brief illness and died. And that seemed to a 10-year-old, extremely mysterious. So I grew up kind of knowing that anyone we love can vanish at any time. And then my second challenge came in 2013 when my husband died of cancer. And I was almost 50 then and couldn't believe this was happening a second time. You know, I felt like, gee, this had sort of already happened. This widow had run in my family. You know, my dad was widowed at 42. Now I'm widowed at 49. <laughs> that was, seemed a little surprising to me. Yeah, just diving right in, two major challenges, people that we love. And I wonder at that point, at 10, it's mysterious, as you say, so don't completely comprehend it. But what we do know is that your dad was there. And I wonder how that great loss and challenge, how that impacted you and your, your dad's relationship. And if you could take us forward a little bit, what was that like for the next period of time, you and your dad? Well, you know, at first it was really hard. This was 1973 and men really didn't do domestic stuff. That wasn't something men did. My dad's a scientist. He's actually a nuclear physicist. He had his career and it involved getting up in the morning pretty late, going to work, coming home in the evening. At that point I was fed and put away. Mom would feed him his drink. I would say hello. And, you know, we'd hang out a little on the weekend. We'd go to the planetarium or something, but he wasn't very involved in all that. And then suddenly... He's got a 10-year-old daughter, a cat, and a suburban ranch house. We were in Northern California. We really had to figure out how to live together and how to make that work and how to kind of be a unit. We didn't get a housekeeper. We got some, some after-school care for me, but we kind of did a lot of things ourselves. But what was amazing is my dad is an amazing parent. He rallied. He got into meditation. He learned how to deal with a 10-year-old when I used to say that the words patient physicist were an oxymoron, that those words did not go together. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, you know, he learned. And by my teens, we were very close. I'm an only child. And we had dinner parties together and we grew up together and we hung out together. And I 
feel like I had a pretty great childhood. What's that like having a dad as a, you say a nuclear physicist. I'm thinking, wow, your dad is literally a rocket scientist. Yep. So <laughs> what is that like? Because it sounds like your dad's Albert Einstein. What's it like growing up with a scientist? It's very interesting. I can't speak for all scientists, but my dad is nocturnal, given a choice. So the house is very quiet in the morning. I think he did his best physics in the evenings, you know, maybe like from midnight to 4 a.m. and then he'd go to sleep. He's super, super smart. It's really interesting to grow up with somebody who has that breadth of knowledge. You know, when you're a kid and you ask, why is the sky blue? You get a real answer. Or what does this word mean? Let's use a dictionary, but then we talk about it for a while. Getting help on my math homework was really interesting because I'd get told how to do the answer 10 different ways. I had to explain that I was really just trying to get to the end of it. He was an astonishing cook because he understood chemistry. (laughs) It was just a really interesting way to grow up. We had lots of really smart people over for dinner and lots of scientists. talk to them. I don't think I realized how ridiculous I probably sounded. That's excellent. It was was a really interesting childhood. Well, I love the way that throughout every part, since the moment that our eyes connected, you've had a smile, you've had this way about you. And it feels like even talking about your dad, that there's a lot ached into that. A lot of that might come from him. It feels like a very positive, loving, nurturing relationship, all circumstances considered. It seems that you turned it into something that is still very, very positive. So thank you for sharing that. I'd love to move forward to the second challenge, though, and the one that I believe your book is about and talking about in 2013 when your husband passed the cancer. Can you narrate for us a little bit leading up to that? What is it important that we hear today, Debbie? Well, I guess what's important... What I would say is that my late husband, George, and I were high school sweethearts. I'd known him since I was seven. My dad and his mom worked together at a research laboratory. So his mom was actually a nuclear physicist, which is pretty unusual for women back then. But letting that go, I know. Two nuclear (laughs) physicists kids together. Wow. I know. I know. I don't have those brains. I wish I did. My late husband kind of did. He was four years older than I am, and he was an engineering major at UC Berkeley. We started dating when I was 17 and he was 21, which at first my dad wasn't too crazy about. And, you know, we kind of got thrown together at stuff over the years since our parents worked together. And then we started dating and that was it. We were together for 32 years. He was my one and only. I went to law school and became an attorney. He went on to be a software architect. He was the lead guy on a Quicken for a while for the, the personal finance project program. But in 2009, you know, he was a workaholic. I, I love George, but he was a workaholic. And in 2009, he came home and he said, I'm going to the hospital. And I thought, that's weird. You don't usually want to go to the hospital. And anyway, he, long story short, he came back and we found out he had metastasized male breast cancer. Metastasized, that means... It spread. It spread. It's it's in there. It's okay. it's in there. And he yeah. really thought he could beat it. And there was a lot of treatments. And we had some really good years. He kept working really hard. I wanted to spend more time together. He really wanted to keep working. But we spent time together. And um, we were fine for about, I don't know, about three years or something until the fall of 2012. And the cancer started to win. And that was very ugly. George had always been very protective of me, probably unnecessarily so, but he kept his real condition from me, didn't let me talk to the doctors, and eventually he went into denial. I knew the cancer had spread to his brain. I didn't know that bad, but he he didn't believe he was dying. He thought he was getting better, so he refused help. He excluded his parents, which still hurts to this day. (laughs) 
And it was crazy because I was trying to help him, but I was a full-time caregiver, but I'm not a nurse. I couldn't, I thought I was making him worse. It was really awful. Eventually he passed on April 10th of 2013. I'm not sure how much I can ask here because I feel a little bit in pain and I know it's not my pain, it's yours. I'd like to ask about that time when you were taking care of him and you didn't have the training necessarily to be doing that at that level, but you did your best. And I wonder when you're doing your best to take care of him and he's in denial about it and maybe not letting you do it. What was that period like for you in that last year or so, Debbie? I don't like to admit this, but I do go into my books. I think it's important to be honest about it. I was bewildered. I didn't know what was happening. And I also got angry because he wasn't letting me get the kind of help that we needed. And I didn't even realize, you know, that there was more help available through his doctors or services, certainly his parents who would have helped. Once they eventually found out way near the end, they wanted to have him at their place and help out. But he turned that down and it was too late by then. I kind of thought I was going crazy. I was very, very stressed. I got these really bad hives and the doctors thought it was menopause. Well, it's stress. So I was on prednisone, which is like being on, I've never been on these, but it was like being amped up. It was like being on some weird drug, you know, your heart's pounding. And I stayed on it for longer than I should have because I had to function. I had to do the grocery shopping. I, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't have hives then. That wasn't happening. So I was amped up, trying to care for him, really out of my element, wheeling him around the house in a wheelchair with tanks. He wouldn't really let me drive him anywhere. It was insane. I mean, I really was not doing well. My dad was really worried for me. Wow. Bewildered and angry, just incredibly difficult time. And, uh, you know, thank you for starting us on the journey and, and sharing that. And I'd love to ask, because I don't want to give away the whole book. I know that part of your book is about what we're talking about. So what inspires you to write the book? You're an attorney and you're married for 32 years to your high school sweetheart. Oh, your dad wasn't fond of it first because he was 21 and you were 17. But this happened and he passed us away. So take us forward from that moment when he passed. What was that like for the next period of time that you can recall? Well, they're kind of different periods of time. I mean, it's 10 years ago. So I have some, I have a lot of perspective now. At first, I just went into, I kind of split into two people. During the day, you would have thought I was so organized. I went into my lawyer mode. I handled the paperwork, the estate work. I figured out the finances. Our house had some deferred maintenance that really needed attention because the bathroom was leaking into the dining room. Had to deal with that. You know, I was doing a lot. It looked a little weird. I was gardening at four in the morning, long, long walks at 7 a.m. But people do that. But at night, I was kind of crazy because I was by myself. George and I were really isolated. I retired from practicing law at 40. We didn't have close friends, really. Colleagues were kind of enough for him. I didn't have a lot of close friends. I had you know, a few friends like from the gym or from, I'd have lunch occasionally with someone I'd worked with, but nobody really close. Nobody you call when someone's dead and you're like, what am I going to do? So I was really isolated. So at night, I drank bourbon and listened to records, especially George's favorite records. I, I think I wore permanent grooves. I wore through a whole copy of uh, the Rolling Stones. I forget which Exile on Main Street. I think I wore out that whole album. I drank and listened to music. And sometimes I ate a lot. Sometimes I ate nothing. My sleep was pretty weird. So it was just really fragmented. But I, I mean, I got better. It got better. Yeah, well, so it got better. And the woman I'm speaking with right now, it's the energy and the light. I can feel it. I can sense it. Before you have this 10 years of perspective, 
you're in a fragmented period. Did you realize it was in that space? Or what was that like when you realized and then started to make progress, if that's the right way to frame it? Oh, yeah. You know, what was good was I was seeing a grief counselor. That was a huge help. At one point, I got in an inappropriate relationship, which I go into more in my book. I don't want to do that here. But the grief counselor was really helpful with that. And I realized I was in that relationship in part because I was so isolated. So this is maybe a little crazy. I started joining groups. And I was in kind of a small, not a small suburban town, but a really suburban town. There weren't a lot of choices. It was Danville, which is about, I don't know, half hour from Berkeley or, or Oakland. But I wasn't going there. I couldn't handle driving that far. I was pretty limited. Even with my phone back then, I was pretty easy for me to get lost. So I joined what I could in my local area. I joined the Rotary Club. I joined some business groups, though I did had no business. I had Georgia Sports Car, so I joined the car club. I talked about selling the car, but they were so nice on the phone. The guy who ran the club was like, he's like, oh, we have breakfast. We have dinners. It was like, okay, I'll I'll do that. I went to a yoga studio (laughs) and I just started doing stuff. It was actually really helpful because I met people and I talked to people and they were nice. And it was a few meals every week. I was out of my house, breakfast Saturday morning with the car club, right? Then we'd go do something car oriented. I'm not really a car person, but that was most of the day with people. And then the Rotary Club was every Wednesday night for dinner. Well, okay, I, again, I'm not a networker really, but they were nice folk. Talked to them, made a couple friends, local people. And, you know, from there, I expanded the things that really did feed me. I joined, most importantly, I went back and joined a writing class I'd been in before. And from there, a writing group. And from there, a close group of friends came out of the writing group. So my weeks, you know, are a lot of time with writing and a yoga studio. And you know, eventually, I got into hiking. And my weekends were spent with friendly hiking friends. So, yeah, mainly I just tried to do stuff. Yeah, well, I didn't think there was anything odd about that or crazy about that at all. It actually sounds like a great road to recovery or therapy or a positive place to be or an isolation for a long time with those that you love. And when that person's no longer there, it feels like the alternative is stay home alone all the time. And I don't know what that might do to us over time. But you took action. You went to Rotary and all these places and eventually... You found the writing group. Is this writing passion of yours now, Debbie? Is this something you've always had or did you discover it in this group? Or how did you come to writing as the place that is your service to people or your place now? Well, I'd always enjoyed writing. I loved it. In college, I was an English major. I'm not a super creative kind of writer. My book's a memoir. I don't think, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I don't think I have that much of an imagination, but I'd always loved it. And when I went to graduate school, I wanted something employable. So I did law school. But then when I was doing a writing class when I was retired, I didn't take it that seriously. But, you know, without George, missing him, having more time, having things I wanted to talk about, I really loved writing. I loved sharing. I loved being in a group with people sharing. And then I guess I'm a little competitive or something. So I started sending things out to publications. I started to send my writing out to different places. And I was a Huffington Post blogger. And from there, I got in a group of writers who wrote for the Hearst magazines. And that was funny. You'd get a prompt. You'd have 48 hours to get something in. Wow. It was, yeah, you got paid $50 if it was accepted. It was very competitive. I got eight articles published, which was neat for a new writer. I kept going and I, and eventually decided to try to write a book. Probably the biggest thing I did with my writing, aside from the book, really, but for the experience is that I went back to school in 2018 and I got my MFA, a master's degree, a two-year degree in creative writing. And I was 56. So that was really... I don't know. That to me was like really cool. What inspired you to do that and go get the MFA at 56? You know, I was writing my book 
Matt. And it wasn't that good. I mean, I was having trouble with structure and writing is lonely, you know, right? You're sitting there, you're lonely. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever done this where you pour over the same page or the same thing a bazillion times and you're like, you start to lose your perspective. And I'd never tried to write anything longer than say a 2000 word essay. So I decided to do something immersive and be with other writers and do something where they pick your work apart and just do this in a group that where I would feel some impetus to move forward and pressure. You know, this was, I had to present stuff but to be in an immersive group and hopefully improve from being in that group of people. Yeah. So you started to write, you wrote the articles, you could do 2000 or less. And I don't want to say easily because this doesn't sound easy, a 48 hour deadline, but, but you seem like the type of person that once you get locked in the zone, you can just go and get it done. If I have to, yeah. It takes me a while to get there. It was easier when I was 25 and trying to pass the bar. But at this point, if I have to do so, I can do it. My degree ended during COVID and my professor said I was one of the few people who could kind of keep up with the deadlines then. And it was because I'm a grown up, I've done this. So yeah, if, if I need to get something done. Yeah. When you were going through the MFA, how open were you or receptive to any criticism, feedback, direction as you were learning the structure? How do you take that feedback? With gratitude for the most part, because... When I went in there, I'm a suburban, privileged, middle-aged lady, pretty insular. So I was really curious if people in my class who were different kinds of folks could like the writing, if it would resonate, if everybody was just like, this sounds like a real housewife or, you know, but without anything interesting to say, let's get rid of her. But, you know, it resonated. And that was really good. And I got some really valuable criticism. That said, the thing that really scared me is my book is out. It's been out a year. And my thesis advisor thought I should have started from scratch all over again. But I wasn't going to do that. My fellow students, I don't think, did think so. And I had a really, really great editor who liked the book. And I worked with her very strongly. I mean, I really cranked on working with her to make it a better book and to meet her standards. You know, when we, she'd edited it once, I said, OK, what is it going to cost to do a second round? Hmm. Well, you've hit, as we start to talk about the book and we share the website, and I'd love to spend a few minutes on that. Before we get to that, I'd love to go back. You said two words that really just set me off here. You said gratitude and curiosity, and those are two of my core values and two of what I would call the values of eternal optimism. And I'm curious, gratitude and curiosity. Now, what are those two words? What does that even mean to you, gratitude and curiosity, Debbie? Well, gratitude to me means that you can be grateful for where you are. That's kind of what that means to me because nothing is ever going to be perfect. But for me, gratitude is moving forward from a time when I thought I was not going to live that long, honestly. I don't know if you've ever heard of the widow effect, the widowhood effect, where people who are surviving spouses just don't live that long after they lose their partner, especially if they were caregivers. They're stressed and they don't come out of it. Wow. And so for me, it's moving past that. I mean, I once had, when I was dating years ago, I had this terrible breakup. And I, again, I don't want to go into it, but it was so awful. And when I thought, well, okay, but this isn't as bad as having your husband die of cancer. This is a man who turned out to be not a good person, profoundly disappointing. This was embarrassing, but you're fine. I mean, your life, you're fine. Everything's still there. Your house is there. Your health is there. So to me, it's moving forward from a really hard part. And curiosity to me is hard. That's harder for me, but it's being positive maybe when things aren't what you want. Example, I just started yoga teacher training. What? And I know. Wow. I know. <laughs> I wanted to come back to that because you mentioned it and you just you kind of lit up when you talked about writing and then you said hiking and you even mentioned a yoga group. 
So why yoga, teacher? It fits you because you're lighting up when you talk about it. But why yoga? I'm not good at it. I wish I were good at it. I still can't do arm balances or curl. I've been at it for nine years. I'm also kind of a risk benefit person. Handstand? No. Potential broken wrist? Yeah, I can live without it. But I just really loved it and I enjoyed it. And honestly, I loved writing the book. Promoting it, I don't love. I love meeting people like you. I love the experience. But trying to actually generate sales, being a salesperson, being focused, getting followers, I hate. I just, not my thing. So I really need something new to engage my brain. (laughs) I need something completely different, something that's devoid of social media, (laughs) just for me. But I'm not good at it. And I kind of was freaking out in class. And I just have to tell myself, if you can be curious, don't be miserable. Don't be shocked, you know, grateful that you have this opportunity, curious about what this experience is, you will do better. You don't have to be good. I was kind of raised kind of always had the idea to be good. You had to be able to like be in the top half of top of the class or something, which I wasn't. So just trying to take away the measurable achievement and look at more at the experience. Wow. That's a lot for a competitive person to come to that realization that it's about the experience, not necessarily just the achievement, it's the experience. So as you're on your journey of becoming a yoga teacher, which is awesome, I cannot wait to see if there's ever a YouTube video of this that you don't have to make yourself, but if someone takes it, I would love to see that just to see the joy. I'm seeking joy. I'm looking for people that's heart is full of joy and something they do. And you're lit up when you talk about it. So I'm curious, where are you right now in your yoga teacher journey? And when's the first class going to be so we can see (laughs) and participate? Thank you. Um, It's an eight week program. We've had one week of classes and I completely freaked out. We had to like practice teach already. And I completely blanked. You would have thought I'd never done yoga before. I was like... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. We don't have class this week, but in the next week and a half, I'm going to really try to figure this out and probably practice on my partner. I don't know. I brought flashcards. So I'm at the beginning and kind of freaked out, but hopefully it'll work. My goal ultimately, I don't really know that I really even want to teach. I'm one of these people who is like, no, no, Debbie, you're other right. And then if I turn another direction, I've lost left and right all over again. Give me something to write. Make me write an essay quickly. I can do that. I can't do this. So I'm I'm in panic mode right now. What I ultimately would like to do is maybe teach kind of a light kind of yoga with a writing component, like put the two together. Well, that would be like, do I say Debbie on steroids? That would be like Debbie, because I love the energy I'm feeling right now. Put you and writing and yoga together. And that just sounds like the best of both worlds. That sounds pretty awesome. You really are seeking the experience. I feel like what I'm learning right now is that you don't have to have this benchmark end goalpost of achievement. Even when you're competitive, it doesn't have to be about that. Simply enjoy the journey and enjoy the experience. I have to do that. I have no choice. I mean, like I said, otherwise, you know, like the book, it didn't do as well as I wanted. I'm going to be honest. It really didn't. It's coming up on a year. And some of the experiences I've had with that were not what I wanted. I don't like a bazillion rejections. So I have to look at it as an experience, a learning curve, what's good about it. Look at the great people I've met. Look at hopefully some of the skills I've learned and just try to look at things in a positive way. Yeah. Well, you got your MFA in 2018 at 56. So that puts you actually. Or 2020. 2020. 2020. Yeah. So that puts you here at the end of a decade as you're getting ready to wrap up your 50s and gloriously, gracefully and gloriously launch into the 60s. 
What's on the horizon for you that, not perfectly planned, but what's on the horizon to look forward to that might be exciting for you here in this next chapter? Well, I moved to Benicia two years ago, and I love it here. I got involved with our local literary society. I did a memoir workshop, and it looks like I'm going to be able, fingers crossed, to teach a memoir writing class that I volunteer to teach for like some senior folks. I've taught memoir before. I love teaching writing. I've also taught essays and got paid for that, which was cool, but I just love to teach writing. So I want to do that. And so I'm excited about my community here. My partner's a realtor here and we kind of, I don't know, we just have a great time running around town on our Vespa and chatting with people. And again, the Literary Society and the Yoga Studio offers a wonderful sense of community. I really found a great community here. One thing that was great from being widowed is when I moved here, I kind of knew what to do. There's the yoga studio. There's great people. Literary society. Awesome people. Joined a couple local hiking and walking groups. Again, awesome people. And so it felt really welcome. And it's a small town here. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the teacher training. Even if I don't really teach, it's definitely a challenge. It's going to take up all summer. We'll see how that goes. And, you know, I'm excited about having a new partner. I'm not real goal-oriented these days, so I tend to look more in terms of, you know, am I living in a way that I like? And we're fixing up our house. It's been two years, but it takes a long time. Yes. Yes. I feel a couple of patterns emerging. One is that you've kind of re-immersed yourself, or maybe for the first time, really immersed yourself into this whole community concept, as opposed to tight-knit family unit of two to now community, and there's an energy about you that I'm just falling in love with as, as you're sharing, just that there's such a joy in the energy, and it's not pointed towards, I have a goal to do this. It's about being and present with these things. And when you talk about teaching a memoir writing class, I just, I appreciate your energy. I wonder if we go back to, it's been 10 years now, is there a different perspective 10 years later that you might be able to tease out and hint for us? I'm sure some of it's in the book. What is it that might be able to share now, 10 years after your husband's passing? Oh, thank you. Yeah, the book really actually ends, and the, the time frame's compressed. It ends more like three or four years after. It was more when I was just kind of trying to figure out how to live on my own. You know, 10 years after his passing, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons that I think apply to me. I think they might be helpful for other people. I don't know. One of the things that I learned, I wished I'd been more gentle with myself. I always felt I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't changing enough. It's fun when you're a widow and you seem okay on the surface because people give you all this cruddy advice. Join an ashram. Why aren't you dating? You have your whole life ahead of you at a time when you're it's really not what you need to hear. And I don't make drastic changes. So I would say be very gentle with yourself for sure. Secondly, to follow your passions. I actually write about this stuff. I have stuff in Next Avenue and I had something in Huffington Post about 10 years after. Follow your passions and then find ways to do that with other people, joining groups. For me, it's hiking. it was hiking groups. It was a yoga studio. It's definitely writing groups and another degree. But for other people, I mean, people who are better than I am at this tech stuff, maybe it's an Apple class and how to use your iPhone or something. But joining, you know, getting out and just being with some other folks. They're senior centers. We have a wonderful one here in Benicia, that type of thing. So figuring out kind of how to do the things you like with other people. And another piece of advice is I dated, I started dating 14 months after my loss. And I would say, wait until you're your whole self, figure out how to live on your own and feel more like a complete person before you date, because it's pretty, pretty nasty out there. I don't want to be too negative or turn people off, but you need to be pretty strong to do that. And I went in too soon. Mm. Well, for those of us out here who know someone who is widowed, 
what are some things that we should not say or do if we have a friend who's been widowed or how should we approach someone who's been widowed? Just what are the do's and don'ts there from others who are on the outside? I can give you five hours, but I'll try to condense it. Yeah, well, the most common thing that someone may have said or done that, oh, that was just painful. Don't do not do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for one thing, definitely not to say things like he's in a better place or God has a plan. I mean, that might be a person's belief. I know they mean it well, but that's not what other people necessarily believe and it doesn't make us feel any better. Our plan is that this person would have stayed healthy. That's not good. Other things are, are you dating yet? Are you moving forward? I think people in our society tend to treat grief as an illness, like something we should get over real quickly and move on. And that's not how it works. Like we integrate the loss. I mean, George is still a part of me. I talk about him all the time and I think that's fine. So I wish that we kind of understood that for widowed folk or grievers in general, we incorporate the people we've lost into our lives. Ask about them. What's a good memory? What do you want to know? Another thing for widowed people is people are uncomfortable. Some of George's closest friends didn't contact me when he died, and I was shocked. And later I found out they were uncomfortable. They didn't know what to say. And don't ignore your widowed friends. Believe it or not, obviously we notice. So reach out and just even offer something small. Offer a walk, a cup of coffee, a chat, a good memory if you can't offer anything else. A good memory, nothing bad. One old friend we've since reconciled said, yeah, he was kind of holding you back. You have a chance for a new life. And I thought that was not useful. Yeah. All kind, right? Yeah, that hurts right? a little bit. If you don't, yeah. yeah. If you have something bad to say of the person who died, please do not. They are not going to learn from it at this point. Yes. You know, we're done. I mean, yes. you know, and the thing that does help is offering positive memories. One thing that helped me was, I mean, George's colleagues, they wrote me some letters with really great memories of him and tributes to him. And they had like a Facebook tribute page. It was really beautiful. I mean, I was devastated, but that made me feel great to know that he'd impacted some lives and they had a beautiful memorial for him. So I would say for your widowed friend, just reach out, offer something modest, not what can I do? Because we don't know what to ask for. It's like, you're not going to say, paint my house, but would you like to get coffee or let's go for a walk? The most helpful thing was a few folks who said, oh, you like to walk. Let's walk together. Let's do it next week. I have a friend who's kind of lonely and I'll say, let's walk. If I'm worried about a friend, my thing is like, I walk, let's walk. It's really simple. It doesn't take planning. It doesn't take much organization. I'm sorry for your loss is good. Not God has a plan or they're in a better place or you'll move on or you'll find someone else. People aren't furniture. We don't redecorate them. So it's just mainly just offering positive memories, being there and offering a small kind of social thing. Nothing too complicated. Not my rich friend who offered meet me at some wineries if you catch us. I wasn't doing that. But, you know, just something simple. Okay. I think that a frame that's different, but I feel right now is maybe the equivalent in a different group is when people get together, they've been dating for a few years, uh, when are you going to get married? Or if someone gets married, hey, uh, when are you having kids? Or when someone passes, uh, when are you going to date again? It just, it seems now that we're talking about it, it seems not the right thing to say. And yet people don't think about it. They just start saying it. I'm with you. I'd love to ask you this. Can you go back to the time that you met George? You were friends as kids. So I'd love to go back to your high school prom or maybe even, do you remember the first time that George ever asked you out? What was that like? If you can take us back to uh, a trip down memory lane. Oh, it was really awkward. I blew it. The first time he asked me out, I blew it. I was 16. He was 20. 
we were at a family Christmas party at his parents' house. And he said that he was going to a party at some friend's house. Would I like to join him and leave that party? And he would make sure you know, I got home okay. And my dad said yes. And I went. And I was so uncomfortable. And I told him I was such a geek in high school. And I was like, oh, yeah, I go to parties. I'm cool. Oh, yeah, I'm busy. I didn't really have to tell him, you know, I spent every Saturday night with my girlfriend, Katie, eating, I don't know, Doritos or whatever, popcorn watching Saturday Night Live. Nice. And so I think I came across as a like, really popular kid, you know, when I was this major, major geek. But we did meet up at a party when I was 17. And I think it was a Halloween party. Or it was a Christmas. I don't remember. My dad had parties. He was good at this stuff. And from then, George and I started to get together. It was after that. He didn't like my music. I remember he was, it's in the book. I have my reading scene. He was looking at my records and I had Steve Miller and... Yeah, Jungler. Yeah, I love some Steve Miller. Yeah, Jungle Love, right? Jungle Love. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I think a little bit of Led Zeppelin and I had, oh, you know, I'm Chick, Joni Mitchell, probably some Joan Baez, Seals and Crofts, right? Super cool. And George was like, oh, wow. Do you know about the Ramones? Gabba Gabba Hey. And I'm like, um, no. He's like, okay, well, how about the Sex Pistols? I'm like, I don't think my dad wants to hear those words. You know, no, how know. about, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Blondie. Oh, well, that sounded interesting. I mean, on, and then finally he said, okay, you're ignorant. And um, he's like, have you ever been to like Mabui Gardens? You know, that was a punk club in the city. No, no, no I didn't didn't do that. And uh, so he started to bring me cassette tapes we had back then of his albums. And he would stop by because he was training. He was a bicycle rider and he was training for the Davis Double Century, which is a 200 mile bike tour in Davis, California. And so he would stop by on his tour and give me tapes. And then eventually we started dating. I didn't expect (laughs) to hear that the nuclear scientist is kind of edgy and listens to punk. I would have thought it was a little more uh, vanilla, but thank you for letting us in to uh, the kind of the rebel. I didn't realize that George is such a rebel. He was a rebel. Back in the day. He was a rebel. Oh, man. Yeah. He, when I met him, he was so cute. He had this dark curly hair and he looked like, like one of the romantics or these bands that were popular then. Nice. And, you know, my high school, it was what, 1981. We were kind of on the edge of the 70s, bell-bottomy jeans, I guess, you know, <laughs> fluffy little tops. We shopped at Mervyn's. And, you know, he was like these striped shirts and the peg jeans and the little boots and the striped jacket and the tie with the, with the musical notes on them. He was totally new wave. So that was... You just said something. I don't know what it is. Is this West Coast? You said Marvin's? Is that... Mervin's. Oh, Mervin's. Is that nationwide or is that West Coast? I, I don't know Mervin's. And maybe it's because I was born in 77. So I'm 46 today. Maybe it's an age different thing. I just don't know Mervin's. That was the spot though. Back in the day, the cool spot in well, 1980. I think it was cool, but it was cheap and it was fashion forward. So it would be like a, I mean, it was more like a Target in style, but it would be like a Zara's or something today where you could get fashionable stuff really cheap. So when you're a teenage girl and you have limited funds and you really want the hottest new pants, you, you're going to buy the knockoff at Mervyn's. Especially when you have a dad like mine who believed girls should wear plaid skirts. You know, My dad was a wonderful dad, as we've talked about, but he definitely was on the conservative side. Let's see. Let's see. I think I just got something wrong. Okay, your dad was the scientist, but also your husband. He was also a scientist. He was a physics major undergrad, but he was an engineer. He started in hardware and he went into software. He was a software developer, software architect, software developer. He got the quick and okay, got uh, Thank you for, for that. Yeah. All right, good. He was a software developer and he was very smart, you know, 800 on the math, SATs, all that stuff. Yeah. Good. 
Good. I just want to give a little bit of credit to all nerds out there. You've associated with being a nerd when you were in high school. So did I, and still to this day. So I appreciate the nerds. You, you are probably more fashion forward and cooler than you thought. So kudos for all nerds out there. We are all united. Well, Debbie, tell us, how do we get your book? Where's the website? How do we find out more about you? Just how do we find out more? Okay. Well, one thing I'm going to advertise is I think my book has a beautiful cover. I think it's really cool looking. Absolutely. Show it up there. Let's take a look at this. Yeah, that's beautiful. Isn't that cool looking? Yeah. It's got a big, beautiful strawberry with it looks like a heart right in the middle. Yeah. My publisher just does really great book covers. So the designer is Tabitha Lahr. I don't know. I just think it's great. (laughs) Um, I was really grateful for that. So you can get my book. The obvious place to get my book is Amazon. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's there. And it's 99 cents on Kindle because I just want more readers. Uh, as an unknown author, I'm not trying to make money. I'm trying to get readers. And you can also obviously get a hard copy. And I think it's $10 or something. I don't know. Excellent. Um, if you want to know more about me, there's my website, which is not surprising, debbieweissauthor.com. If you want to find me, I talk to people. I mean, if you message me, I message widowed people back. That's kind of this thing I do. If you're sad and you widow and you message me, I'll eventually message back. And I'm on Facebook as Debbie Weiss. I'm also Debbie Weiss author, but I don't maintain that page. I'm Debbie Weiss author, I believe, on Instagram. Debbie Weiss author on Instagram. I'm on TikTok, but I lost how to log in, and I'm very happy not to be there anymore. Yep. (laughs) Likewise, yes. Well, so DebbieWeissAuthor.com will have that link in the show notes. And you can find Debbie on Facebook or on Instagram. And her book is available as is. It has a beautiful cover. Let's take a look here. We've got a few minutes to go. If you're open, I'd love to put you in the lightning round of questions. Can we do that for a few more minutes? Okay, okay. Well, then ding, ding, ding. Here we go. All right. So lightning round. The first question, the name of our show is The Eternal Optimist podcast. And when I say eternal optimist, what does that mean to you, Debbie? It means you're always looking on the bright side of things and that it's a mindset. Awesome. Awesome answer. If there is a book or two that have been inspirational or have been helpful for you in some way in your life at any stage, what might be one or two books that have been impactful for you? I love the MFK Fisher books, The Art of Eating. She has a whole bunch of books and you can buy a paperback that has them all together. My dad and I grew up cooking together and I love MFK Fisher. She writes about food, but also she does that as memoir, which is amazing. I love Lori Colwin, both her fiction and nonfiction. Home Cooking is her cookbook, but other books, I'm getting blank on them. This is a lightning round. So MFK Fisher, Lori Colwin, and Showing the Geek I Am, I've enjoyed reading a lot of Joseph Campbell. Oh, of course. Oh, man. Kindred Spirits. Another Joseph Campbell fan. Good. Good. Yeah. Major major Joseph Campbell fan. Start with the hero's journey. Excellent. Well, you've mentioned two cookbooks. Is there a Debbie Weiss, like a special recipe, like your go-to signature Debbie dish? Ironically, I do not cook. My dad cooked. George cooked. My current partner barbecues. I believe that men cook. Fair. Well, is there a favorite dish you like to eat that your partner cooks or your dad cooked? Lately, I'm so boring these days. Probably barbecued chicken and corn at home. We just make these simple dinners and I just love it. So I just love having, yeah, in our new home, it's just so lovely to be outside on the deck. There's water. I'm happy with my yeah, barbecued chicken. Excellent. Nothing boring about that at all. It's nothing like being present to the things that give you energy that you love. So thank you. Last question. If there is some inspirational music to you, you've mentioned a number of bands from earlier on, even back in the record days, you mentioned the Rolling Stones. Is there a favorite that inspires you that just fills your cup? I have a bunch. Joni Mitchell, Horton Spark, 
Definitely traffic. I love traffic. Badfinger. You can tell late 70s stuff. My partner's really into the Guess Who. Lately, I've been enjoying that. I listen to stuff on vinyl. So for me, what's kind of inspiring is to hear something on vinyl. Ooh, nice. A purist. Listen on vinyl. Awesome. Well, Debbie, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and hearing part of your story. And I encourage all of our listeners to go and check out Debbie's book, Available As Is. I feel we could chat for a long time, and I love the way that you can see a subject, hone in on it, and just go deep into it. I love that lawyer part of you, and then there's the energy about that. It's been a real joy. So thank you for being with us today, Debbie. We much appreciate you and love you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Matt. I love this. Thank you. This was just really, really lovely. I really enjoyed this.